This morning, I am very excited as we are beginning a new sermon series today. And the series is called In Christ, and it will be an exposition of St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. This series will be our focus for the remainder of ordinary time leading up to the season of Advent. And with that being said, if you are visiting All Saints today, if you're here just checking us out, I want to encourage you to stick around for the remainder of this series before you make a decision to either stay or leave. And my reason for that is because I really believe this series will give you a better understanding of our theology and our ethos here at All Saints. Also, on that same note, if you are a member of All Saints and have been thinking about inviting family or friends to church, this would be a great time to do that. A new sermon series always gives new people an easy on-ramp into our worship service. Today, I'll be presenting introductory remarks, so next week will be the perfect time to invite people to attend church with you. With all that being said, um, as we give our attention to the epistle of Ephesians over the next few months, my goal is that at the end of this series, you will have a full understanding of the following three things. Number one, your blessings in Christ. Number two, your position in Christ. And third, what it looks like to live life in Christ, particularly for you and your household. And these themes follow the natural structure of the Apostles' writing. As you will see in the coming weeks, chapters 1 through 3, St. Paul expounds upon the indicatives of the gospel the reality of the gospel. These chapters focus on our blessings in Christ and our position in Christ. Then in chapters 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul speaks to the imperative of the gospel, the response to the gospel, or the application of the gospel. And these are the chapters that address how we functionally live life in Christ. This morning, as an introduction to the epistle to the Ephesians, I want to consider the following three things. So number one, I want to look at the authorship of the epistle, the audience of the epistle, and the occasion or the reason for the epistle. Also, I want you to be aware of two sets of questions that are in your bulletin this morning. Children, there is a set of questions for you. Uh, in the sermon notes, I have listed uh, children's questions. And my goal in providing these questions is to help you follow along during the sermon. And my plan is to have a list of questions for you every sermon throughout this series. The other set of questions are for head of households. These are intended to help facilitate conversation 
around the sermon throughout the week. My thought is that these questions may be used to uh, fodder discussion on the drive home or during family worship or perhaps when someone comes over for dinner. All right, with all of that being said, we are going to give our attention to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read those verses, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head with me as I pray a prayer of illumination? Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate your holy word. Clearly show us your grace and peace. Help us to understand faith and practice. I pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's begin by considering the authorship of of Ephesians. So look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The epistle to the Ephesians was written by the apostle Paul around AD 60. Pauline authorship is supported by the internal evidence here in verse 1 and also in chapter 3 verse 1. Furthermore, External evidence for Pauline authorship is supported by the composition of the prison epistles in congruence with one another. So Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. These are all accepted as being written by the Apostle Paul sometime during his Roman imprisonment or any time between Acts 22 and Acts 28 and even after Acts 28. In chapter 6, verse 21, we are told that Tychicus delivered the letter to the Ephesians. We also know that he delivered the letter to the Colossians and is mentioned by name in 2 Timothy and Titus. This, too, provides external evidence for Pauline authorship as there is continuity within the use of a particular courier from multiple letters. Here in verse 1, it is important to note Paul's appeal to his authority as an apostle, as the author of the text. And most importantly, an apostle by the will of God. St. Paul spent two years in Ephesus church planting, and this is recorded for us in Acts chapter 19. While in Ephesus, the Christians there witnessed and experienced the power and authority that Paul had as an apostle, particularly demonstrated through extraordinary miracles. And so here, in verse 1, Paul is reminding the Ephesian church of that apostleship they witnessed. The words of Paul carry with them 
a specific level of gravitas because he was ordained and appointed to be an officer of the church by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And this is extremely important for us here at All Saints. As we work through the text over the next couple of months, it is important for you and me to recognize the words of the Apostle Paul are inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed out by God, and thus infallible and inerrant. In short, St. Paul, here in this epistle, is speaking on behalf of God. The words of the Apostle Paul were authoritative for the Ephesians, and they are authoritative for you and me. As we engage with the text of this epistle, you and I will be engaging with the very word of God. Look at the second part of verse 1 and notice Paul's audience. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul is the author of this letter and the Christians who are in the region of Ephesus are his audience. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. But notice that Paul describes his audience as being faithful in Christ Jesus. And the best way to understand this phrase is in comparison to the church of Galatia. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul calls into question the fidelity of the Christians there. They had been deceived and turned their minds and hearts to a false teaching concerning justification. In contrast to that, Paul is highlighting that the Ephesians have been devoted in their faith and practice concerning Jesus Christ. And Paul makes this very clear in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 1 when he says the following. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. When Paul speaks to the faithfulness of the Ephesians, he is commending their faith in Christ and their practice concerning Jesus' commands. The Christian faith that the Ephesians practiced was inherited. It was handed down to them from the apostles. They didn't build it. They didn't formulate it. They didn't establish it. In fact, Paul will say in chapter 2, that the church, universally speaking, is being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And this notion had practical implication for the Ephesian Christians. Their faithfulness was not measured by their theological ingenuity or their theological genius. Instead, their faithfulness was measured by their adherence to the teaching of Christ and the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. In other words, they were only considered faithful 
to the degree that they were faithful to the apostolic teaching concerning Christ. Likewise, our faith, being the same Christian faith, is not something that we have created. Instead, it's something that we have inherited. It's been handed down to us. We didn't build it. We didn't formulate it. And we did not establish the Christian faith. This has practical implications for you and me as well. For me, as a pastor, in light of this, my job is not to be an innovator, but to faithfully give exposition to that which has already been revealed. My job is to counsel and to point towards and exhort and admonish with that which has already been revealed. Similarly, as a Christian, you are not to be looking for new revelation or new theology, for you and I are to keep and preserve that which has been handed down to us from the apostles and prophets. In fact, this is the very task that Martin Luther and John Calvin were engaged in. The Reformation was not an exercise in theological innovation, but rather a determined return to that which had already been revealed. And as we engage with the epistle to the Ephesians, we are interacting with God's holy word that has been kept and practiced for 2,000 years by Christians around the world. When we listen to, adhere to, and practice the teaching of the Apostle Paul, we are engaged in Christian orthodoxy. And it's not our practice in the sense of our tradition that makes us orthodox. Rather, it is the inerrant, inspired text that we adhere to that makes us orthodox. Expressed here in verse 1, and as we will see in the coming weeks, according to Paul, one's faithfulness is measured by their status in Christ, not by their ingenuity and innovation. Look at verse 2 and consider the occasion for Paul's letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we have established, Paul is the author. The audience are the Christians in Ephesus. And his occasion or reason for writing is to exhort and encourage the Ephesians in their faith and practice. This is seen in the structure of Paul's writing. As I mentioned, in chapters 1 through 3, St. Paul expounds upon the indicatives of the gospel. These chapters are about what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished, and they describe what our faith is in, namely, Christ. Then in chapters 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul speaks the imperatives of the gospel. These are chapters in which he deals with the practice of our faith. But notice how Paul begins his letter with these words. Grace and peace. 
As we consider the book of Ephesians, it is important that we understand one of Paul's gospel nuances that comes through in the writing of this letter, and that is this. Grace proceeds obedience and good works. Grace precedes obedience and good works. There's a theological reason for why the first three chapters are all about what God has done and accomplished in Christ, and then subsequently why the last three chapters are about our faith and practice, what we accomplish in the power of Christ. And the theological reason for that is this. Grace precedes obedience and good works. We do good works in light of the work that Christ has already done for us on our behalf. In the letter to the Ephesians, you will see that we are to obey the law of God as Christians. But not as a means to earn our justification, but instead as a result of our justification. And in order to get our practice right, we must first get our faith right. And we see this in the way that Paul has structured his writing. With that being said, it's important for us to understand these truths. Mysteriously and miraculously, being conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, being God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus took on human flesh and became the God-man. He lived a sinless life for you and me in our place, procuring real righteousness for us through his obedience to God the Father. Jesus then suffered and died on the cross in our place. As our substitute, he suffered under the wrath of God and absorbed the penalty you and I deserve for our sin and rebellion. He was buried, but on the third day he rose again in bodily form, defeating sin and death for us so that we too will one day rise from the dead like him unto eternal life with God the Father. Jesus was seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses and then ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, reigning and ruling. This is the gospel, the heart of the Christian faith. And the Ephesians experienced both grace and peace from God in their lives as the gospel was applied in them. With grace and peace realized through the gospel, the Ephesian Christians were able to engage in faithful practice, adhering to the teaching of the apostles and the prophets and Christ. The same is true for you and me. As we experience grace and peace from God through the application of the gospel in our lives, we can engage in faithful practice, adhering to the full counsel of God's word. You see, the teaching of the apostles begins with grace from Jesus Christ that then moves us to obedience. 
However, you and I are prone to try and begin with good works that then lead to grace. In our attempt at self-justification, we flip the apostolic teaching of the gospel upside down. We begin with obedience. We begin with good works. You and I strive to earn God's grace by homeschooling our children or sending them to Christian school. We seek to win God's love by doing good works of mercy. We try and justify ourselves through the use of our gifts and abilities, like singing and teaching and even preaching. Commonly, we try to earn grace through our knowledge and intellectual prowess, as though God, the one who learns nothing and knows all things, would be impressed with how much we know. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. All those good works are good. But they become bad when we use them as our means of justification. When we rest in them or we try to present them to God as our means of acceptance with him. Using the good works and the good things of God as a means for our justification is not the way to arrive at faithfulness. Instead, you and I must begin with our sin and the need for God's grace in our own lives. Then, after being justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, we can move to good works that lead to sanctification. And this is an important distinction. The distinction between justification and sanctification. We must never try and obey God as a means for our justification or our righteousness or our acceptance with him. The minute we do that, we engage in an awful expression of idolatry in which we try to become like God and accomplish our own salvation. Sanctification is an important element of the Christian life. And it's the practice of our faith. It's what chapters 4 through 6 are all about. However, in our proclivity to be our own Savior, we cannot confuse or mix up justification and sanctification. Therefore, we must understand these truths. We are justified by the atoning work of Jesus Christ applied to us by grace through faith. We experience sanctification as the righteousness of Jesus Christ moves us to obedience and good works. I'm going to repeat that. We are justified by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, applied to us by grace through faith. We experience sanctification as the righteousness of Jesus Christ moves us to obedience and good works. This is a helpful and necessary distinction. As an introduction to Ephesians and our sermon series, In Christ, I pray that you understand Paul's reason for writing. And that is this. 
his occasion and his reason for writing is to exhort and admonish and encourage the Ephesians and by extension you and I in our faith and practice. This is the scope of his writing. To exhort us in our faith, chapters 1 through 3, and our practice, chapters 4 through 6. And a rightful understanding of those things is important. I hope you understand that we must begin with grace and then arrive at obedience. We have to start with justification and move towards sanctification. We set off by understanding the indicatives of the gospel so that we can adhere to the imperatives of the gospel. In light of this, over the course of this sermon series, I pray that your hearts and minds are prepared to know and experience the following. Your blessings in Christ. Your position in Christ. And then from that understanding and that experience, moving to live a faithful life in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you bow your head with me as we bring our prayers and petitions to our Heavenly Father?